Genesis 33. It's often said that one picture is worth a thousand words. Oh, words are wonderful in their precision and their detail. But just let me see one picture and it will cut all the explanation in half. I'll tell on myself, we stopped this week sometime on our way home and I said I want to pick up a newspaper and as I came walking back to the car with the USA Today, my wife said, you didn't buy the Wall Street Journal. And I said, no, I like to look at the pictures. And I wasn't entirely kidding. Because one picture is worth a thousand words, isn't it? But we Christians are a people of the word. God has given us the Bible, 66 books. And even, indeed, even when Jesus came, he revealed himself as the Word. And God has largely restricted us from making pictures of him in favor of studying his Word, listening to him. Oh, but in his Word, God has nonetheless given us pictures, word pictures, if you will. He didn't just reveal himself to us through some theology book. I don't know if you've read a lot of theology books. I have read a few, and they are pretty dusty things sometimes. But in fact, the Bible is not basically a theology book. It's a book full of poems and songs and stories and uh, all kinds of uh, things, letters and uh, things we don't understand. Uh, Very picturesque writing. For God, who knows God knows that we need to see what he's talking about, not just discuss it as theory. Well, this morning we come to some wonderful biblical snapshots. Not pictures taken by some ancient camera, but word pictures, illustrations lived out in people's lives, but pictures nonetheless, pictures that are more valuable than a thousand words of trying to describe these wonderful truths that are in play here. There are three truths, basically, that are uh, before us, uh, three concepts, uh, three theological realities, repentance and reconciliation and obedience. But rather than just go into a theological discourse on all of those things, the Lord pictures for us in a wonderful way some of these things. Let's read it, Genesis 33. Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. He put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then he looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you, he asked. Jacob answered, these are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. And last of all, Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, what do you mean by all these droves I met? To find favor in your eyes, my Lord, he said. But Jacob said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, Jacob, if I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. 
For to see your face is like seeing the face of God, now that you have received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. And then Esau said, let us be on our way, I'll accompany you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are tender, and that I must care for the ewes and the cows that are nursing their young if they are driven hard just one day, all the animals will die. So let my Lord go on ahead of his servant while I move along slowly at the pace of the droves behind me and that of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. Esau said, Then let me leave some of my men with you. But why do that? Jacob asked. Let me just find favor in the eyes of my Lord. So that day Esau started on his way back to Seir. Jacob, however, went to Succoth, where he built a palace for himself and made shelters for his livestock. That is why the place is called Sakoth. After Jacob came from Paddan Aram, he arrived safely in the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver he bought from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. And there he set up an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. And we'll end there. As I've said, there are three great truths being pictured here, repentance and uh, reconciliation and obedience. And so our three points this morning will try to unpack something of those uh, pictures. The first is this. <clears throat> repentance means more than just saying, I'm sorry. Repentance means more than just saying, I'm sorry. There, there's a cheap grace around churches these days that doesn't want to talk about repentance. Some places you could be in the church for years. You could hear the gospel for years and never hear really anything about repentance. As one writer put it, there's a notion that we can add Christ Jesus into our lives without taking any sin out. And even when repentance is spoken of, it often boils down to saying, okay, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But in contrast to such shallow repentance, which is so often spoken of in Christian circles. Think about when you were growing up and how many times you heard your parents say something like, well, well, unfortunately, I'm sorry doesn't put the pieces back together. Did you ever hear that kind of thing? <laughs> I'm sorry doesn't hack it. I'm sorry doesn't undo what you just did. I seemed to hear that a lot when I was a boy. I guess I needed to know that repentance means more than saying I'm sorry. That's the first lesson of God's word for us this morning. Now, Jacob, you know the story here. Jacob has been planning to meet his angry brother, his brother who's angry because he stole his, uh, his birthright and then stole the blessing of his father. You recall all his terrified planning, which we read about last week. He sent one band of servants after another, what Esau calls the droves here, out to meet Esau. Each one had a herd or a flock of livestock as a gift. Jacob was scrambling to know how he might pacify his vengeful brother and somehow spare his own life. But you see, Jacob himself was not ready to meet Esau, as we saw last week. God had to bring Jacob to an end of himself first. Jacob had to come to understand that, that he was the problem, not Esau. Jacob had to first be defeated by God in order that he might be delivered by God, as we talked about last week. And so the Lord wrestled with Jacob all night at Peniel. 
And finally, Jacob was ready for this meeting with Esau, for he was no longer trusting in himself and his ability to scheme and maneuver and outmaneuver his brother. He had come to trust in God who promised to fight for him. Jacob finally begins to think like a man of faith, acting in confidence in God, not in his own scheming. Now we see that faith displayed in verse 3 here when Jacob, no longer the coward willing to, uh, to uh, sacrifice other people for himself, after he divides all of his family up, actually, uh, according to how well he liked them, I think, but, which isn't such a noble thing, but after dividing them all up, where do you find Jacob? Not at the very end where he's, they've got to, Esau's got to kill everybody before he gets to me, but you find Jacob now, the man of faith, the man with some courage, not cowardice, walking out in front of all of his family to go and meet the angry, vengeful, Esau. Here's a man no longer evasive and cowering. Here's Jacob who has become Israel. Confident of what his name declares, God fights for me. But you see, that's a sign of his faith. But the other side of that faith, which we see pictured here, is repentance. Now repentance is not some work that we add to our faith that builds up some store of merit before God. That's not what, how repentance ought to be thought of. Repentance is a change of mind that corresponds to our faith, which produces in us a change of behavior as we turn from our sinful behavior to God in faith. The turning to God is called faith. The turning from is called repentance. Louis Burkhoff puts it this way. True repentance never exists except in conjunction with faith. Well, on the other hand, wherever there is true faith, there is also repentance. The two are but different aspects of the same turning. A turning away from sin in the direction of God. The two cannot be separated. They are simply complementary parts of the same process. A process which we might add is an evidence of the grace of God who grants us both repentance and faith. Oh, but now we're getting into the thousand words that it takes to try to describe repentance. Let's just look at the picture that God gave us here as it's worked out in the life of Jacob. In verses 1 to 11, we see Jacob's act of repentance toward Esau in the most vivid terms. One thing piled on top of another. Let me just go through some of the things that show us that. In verse 3, we see that Jacob bows down. As, as, as Esau comes, Jacob walks out to meet him, and he bows down before Esau. The Old Testament scholar, Bruce Waltke, points out that the term, this term bows down, this term denotes touching nose and forehead to the ground in prostate position as a symbol of submission before a superior. This is the way you bow down to a king. Put your face in the dirt, prostrate before the king. But he doesn't just do this one time, he does it seven times. We know from the Amarna letters, which is an archaeological find that tells us a good bit about this, uh, the customs of this period, 
we know that bowing down seven times was the standard court protocol for the way that you addressed a sovereign, the way that a vassal addressed his overlord. He came and he bowed down his face to the dirt and he got up and he came and bowed again and he got up and he bowed again seven times. It was a standard protocol to say, you are the Lord and I'm your servant. And when Jacob speaks, he does just that. He calls Esau himself Esau's servant. And he calls Esau his Lord. Again, Waltke explains, in the international diplomacy of that day, this is the unmistakable language for submitting oneself by treaty to be a subject. In fact, we see it even in the fact that Jacob didn't speak first. He waited for Esau to speak because a vassal would never come and speak first. It was the king's. It was the overlord's choice whether he wanted to address you or not. You see what's happening here? As Jacob comes bowing repeatedly, bowing, going through all of this protocol of the way that a servant treats the, the, the master, the, the vassal treats the overlord. You see what's going on here? Jacob is giving back the blessing that he stole. Jacob is giving back to Esau the blessing that he stole from him. His bowing and putting himself in the servant role, according to all the cultural rules of the day, is exactly reversing that blessing that he deceived his father and took from Esau. Esau had blessed Jacob. Deceived, but blessed Jacob, saying, May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. That was the blessing received. Now what Esau is doing, he realizes he received that blessing by deceit. It was not his to take. And so now the best he can, he's doing exactly the thing that his father said Esau would do to him. He is bowing down. He is prostrating himself before his brother. He is blessing his brother as he's the Lord. This becomes even more clear when we get to verse 11. In verse 11 we, receive, we, we read, Please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me. Now, there's one thing we don't see here in the NIV translation. That word present, in verse 11, has been apparently intentionally changed from the normal word for gift, please receive this gift, and instead the Hebrew word for blessing is used. The very same word used back in chapter 27 for what Jacob stole from his brother. So that what Jacob says to Esau when he finally goes through all of this protocol and he gets to him, he says, please accept the blessing that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me. Now you may object, wait a minute, wait a minute. God promised Jacob that blessing. God said before they were born that the older would serve the younger. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Yes, God did promise that. And God would give that blessing to Jacob. But the fact that God promised it does not mean that it was Jacob's to steal. 
The fact that God promised it does not mean it was Jacob's to steal. And so now, in true faith, which trusts God to do what he promised, and also in true repentance, Jacob reverses the sin that he has done. As much as it's possible, he gives back the blessing to Esau. And leaves it in God's hands how he'll work it out. That's repentance. Repentance is more than just saying, I'm sorry. This morning, God still calls us to repentance. Not what we think of as repentance some bad feelings that I have when I get caught in my sin. That's not repentance, that's just recognizing I'm guilty. But steps of faith which reverse the direction that I've been walking. Oh, I know you can't undo the sin. Oh, how I wish we could undo the sin. But you can turn around and walk in the opposite direction. And sometimes you can make restitution, though it might be very costly. It must be done when possible. For it's still true, as this vivid picture shows, repentance involves more than just saying, I'm sorry. And then there's another picture we ought to see here. Which brings us to the second point. God reconciles sinners. God reconciles sinners. Now the reason a lot of people don't talk about repentance very much is that they don't want it to make it seem like somehow if we do enough stuff we can earn God's favor. Well that's, uh, that's good. That's exactly right. We cannot earn God's favor. God's favor is pure grace. It is God who reconciles sinners. We can't make that happen by our own efforts. But reconcile he does. And here we have a beautiful picture of God's reconciling work in action. For here we don't just see Esau reconciled to God. Here we see Jacob reconciled with Esau. Let's read again verse 3 and 4. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. That's reconciliation. What a picture. The enmity is removed. The sense of brotherhood is restored. And the love and the joy of it all fill them both. Jesus used almost exactly the same words when he talked about the picture in the parable of the prodigal son, he, he gave the picture of the father receiving 
the repentant son. Same language. But what brought about this reconciliation? Not Jacob scheming. Jacob scheming had only gotten him in deeper trouble for years. God had to go to great lengths to turn Jacob away from his scheming approach. Indeed, it was not even that Esau had suddenly become godly. If you read carefully here, you can see that. For throughout this section, Jacob repeatedly gives praise to God and acknowledges God as the one who has blessed him and given him children and blessed him and prospered him and given him all that he has. Esau never says such things, not once. Never gives God credit for anything. Oh, he's apparently no longer so angry about the events. But you see, that doesn't necessarily mean that God has made him a, a new person and he's a godly person. It may just mean that he doesn't really care about God's blessing anymore. It's really not a big thing if Jacob stole it because he didn't want it anyway. Which is more the pattern of his life. He's not living in the land of promise. He's off doing his own thing in, in Edom and He's prospering, and he's got wealth, and he's got power, and here he comes with his men. And, and God's promises and God's blessing is not a factor, so why should he be mad at Jacob anymore? You see, the reconciliation didn't come from Jacob's scheming, and it didn't come from Esau's godliness. Where did this beautiful reconciliation come from? It comes from God. God reconciles sinners. Here's a picture of God's grace at work. In this very human situation, but God sovereignly changing Esau's heart enough to make him receptive, and God wrestling Jacob to the ground to make him faithful. God is bringing reconciliation to these brothers. Also that this picture might let us catch a glimpse of how great God's reconciliation is for us. Now verse 10 makes it clear that what we're talking about, what's being, what we're being pointed to here, is something bigger than just two brothers making up. Look at verse 10. Jacob says to Esau, For to see your face is like seeing the face of God, now that you have received me favorably. To use the language we talked about last week, Jacob suddenly takes this reconciliation out of the horizontal dimension and puts it in a vertical dimension. <laughs> to see your face receiving me is like seeing the face of God. Here, Jacob uses the same language that he used back at Peniel when he spoke of seeing the face of God. For you see, there is this parallel here. God was Jacob's adversary there when he wrestled him because of Jacob's sin. Esau is Jacob's adversary because of Jacob's sin. But by God's grace, Jacob had encountered the Lord at Peniel and survived. And now by God's grace, Jacob encounters Esau and survives. And so as far as Jacob is concerned, looking at Esau's face and being received is like looking in God's face and being received. 
In both cases, he could only see grace where vengeance should have been. Reminds me of some wonderful lines from Michael Card's song on the year of Jubilee, an Old Testament uh, festival. He says, to be so completely guilty, given over to despair, to look into your judge's face and see a Savior there. Jubilee. Jubilee. Jesus is our jubilee. Debts forgiven. Slaves set free. Jesus is our jubilee. This morning I tell you what Jacob experienced is a picture Christ Jesus accomplishes in reality for us. This is the heart of the good news that God reconciles sinners. We read it in 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And then that passage says it again. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Look into the judge's face and see a Savior instead. And then it says it a third time in 2 Corinthians 5, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You see, on the cross, the Lord Jesus satisfied the wrath of God against our sin in order that he might welcome us to himself reconciled. Oh, not that we're reconciled to God, that he's reconciled to us. And now the father's attitude is that portrayed in the familiar parable of the prodigal son, ready to welcome undeserving sinners who have squandered their lives in wickedness, but who, like Jacob, have come, come to an end of themselves in the pig pen, and now in true repentance turn around and come home to the father making no excuses, but trusting, believing his promise that the work of Jesus is enough that God will receive me back. And sure enough, it is. For in Christ, God is reconciling sinners. Now, I wish I could stop there, but there's one more thing this chapter talks about Something rather distressing, unfortunately. Which brings us to our third point. If God is God, obey him. If God is God, then obey him. I don't know about you, I always seem to have unfinished projects around my house. The front door comes to mind. How, how long has it been now and it's still not repainted? That chair that I broke a year ago, finally I did get that fixed last week. You know how it is. Just always these things that you started on, you got part way and it just never quite got finished. Well, here we see an example of unfinished projects of the soul. Incomplete obedience, which unfortunately may also be true of us all. But folks, I would just say to you this morning, if God is really God, 
If God is your God, then he ought to be fully obeyed. All the way. Not just part way. Now, although it's not so obvious on the first reading here, here in Genesis 33, we appear to have an example of Jacob's partial obedience, unfinished obedience, obedience which stopped short of his goal. Let me explain. Remember when Jacob met the Lord back at Bethel, long time ago now, years ago from where we are in the account, and uh, had the vision of the ladder to heaven and the angels ascending and descending. You remember all of that? Before he left there, he made a vow to the Lord. It's recorded in chapter 28. He said, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I may return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God and this stone that I have set as a pillar will be God's house and all of all you give me, I will give you a tenth. That's the vow that Jacob made to the Lord at Bethel. Years later, when he's at Jacob's house in Paddan, Paddan Aram, Aram um, the Lord appeared to Jacob again, and he says to Jacob, I am the God of Bethel. Remember me? I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now, leave this land at once and go back to your native land. And so Jacob packed up to go. Now, it doesn't absolutely say it for certain, but it certainly sounds like that the Lord is telling Jacob to go back to Bethel, doesn't it? At Bethel, Jacob makes a promise. The Lord will bring him back here. He'll worship him. And then when he's far away, God says, I'm the God of Bethel. Get back there. It sounds like it's Bethel that God's talking about. The problem is that when Jacob goes back to the land here, And he does go back, just like God told him. And he gets back into the land here, and then according to verse 20, he sets up an altar, just like he had promised. And he calls on the name of the Lord, and he worships the Lord there. And he calls the altar El Elohe Israel, which means God, the God of Israel, or God is my God, because his name was Israel. Sounds like that he's done what he promised, to return and to worship the Lord, the God of Bethel. The only problem is, He didn't quite get to Bethel. He stopped first at Succoth where he put up some tents and kept his flocks for a little while and then he moved to Shechem. And in Shechem he bought a piece of ground and he settled down. Not for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. But when you look at the language about his daughter Diana who is uh, going to become the the, the, uh, important in the next chapter... She was a little girl, probably seven or so, when they left Laban's house. And she's at least in her late teens or early 20s when we get to chapter 34. For probably at least 10 years, Jacob settled down in Shechem. One day's journey short of Bethel. But of course it made sense to settle in Shechem because Bethel's kind of an out-of-the-way place and Shechem was a major crossroads, and so there was good business there, and there were a lot of things happening there. And uh, he, he pitched his tent within sight of the city. Almost sounds like Lot, doesn't it? Going close to Sodom. And he pitched his tent, and he brought property, and he settled down, and he made a life there at Shechem. So what's the big deal? 
He's back in the land. Well, when we read the next chapter, which you'll see next week, we'll see that the cost of this just slightly incomplete obedience was terrible. As Derek Kidner writes, a cost paid in rape, treachery, and massacre, a chain of evil that proceeded logically enough from the unequal partnership with the Canaanite community. The unequal partnership between Jacob and Shechem. But you see, none of it would have happened if he had gone to Bethel like he was supposed to. His trouble was the direct result of incomplete obedience. Or someone said, it's a whole lot easier to just obey God no matter what he tells you to do than it is to suffer the consequences. And so when all that's over in chapter 34, this terrible mess that we'll read about next week, when he gets to chapter 5, what happens? The Lord appears to him and says, Jacob, now go to Bethel. And settle there. And build an altar. God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. In other words, get on with completing your obedience. Now that you paid the terrible price. Of your daughter being defiled. And the city being massacred. The price of incomplete obedience. Oh, you see, Jacob worshipped the Lord there. There's no question. He set up an altar and called the place Elohe Israel. The Lord Almighty is my God. But Jacob was still learning, if God is your God, then obey him. If God is God, then do what he says. Completely. This morning, do you need to hear that? have any half-completed obedience needs to be addressed? We made initial commitments which still await the follow-up. Made professions that still await the practice. Learned to talk the talk, but we haven't got around to walking the walk yet. I challenge us this morning concerning the loose attitude toward obedience. Well, I meant to obey. I just didn't get around to it. No. If God is God, then do what he says. picture is worth a thousand words. We might read volumes on repentance God's gracious reconciliation. The importance of full obedience. But here, for the sake of all of us who need to have some pictures, the Lord shows us what it looks like. For who will ever forget Jacob taking up the role of a common servant, of a vassal before an overlord, 
in order to return the stolen blessing because he came to understand that repentance is more than just saying I'm sorry. Who can forget the joy and the relief as Jacob looks into Esau's face and is received as a brother rather than attacked as an enemy. But you see, that's what God does. God reconciles sinners. And what a terrible event we're about to witness at Shechem as Jacob's only daughter is defiled and then the city massacred but he wasn't even supposed to be there if only he had understood because God is God he must be fully obeyed repentance and reconciliation obedience you don't have to read theology books to learn about those things Open your Bible. Look at the pictures. Amen. Oh, Father, thank you for these wonderful accounts that uh, impress upon us these great truths that when we try to describe them, Lord, oh, we can just write pages and pages, and yet, Lord, here we feel the weight of it when we see Jacob humbling himself in true repentance, for example. We see that these things are more than we sometimes think. Grant to us, Lord, the knowledge of these things. True repentance. True reconciliation. True obedience. Thank you for your word. And now, Lord, that you've planted it in our hearts this morning. I pray that you would water it and uh, cause it to grow this afternoon and tonight and throughout this week, the days ahead, in order that it might spring up and bear fruit in us Abundant fruit, the fruit of repentance and the reconciliation and obedience that might make us ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors of the good news of the things that we learn here, which all point us to Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen.